quieren todo. Chicas, champán, fama, fama. No duran nada. Buenos dias to my friends and fam. I'm going to take you down south to a special land donde el sol está brillando, el viento está soplando, y escuchan tango en cada calle. Como andas, Che Guevara es still a hero to most. Ellos como dulce de leche on toast y tomen mate y vino de Santa Fe. Don't cry for me, Argentina. Y vida used to say, la comida está rica, fútbol 5 all day. La Bruna, Messi, Maradona, es el rey. Este país tiene todo, you probably say. Buenos gentes, buenos aires. Barilo Che, los pingüinos y ballenos en Ushuaia, gas en vaca muerta, carne always, so Riddle me this, porque yo no sé how a country this rich lost its economic way, defaults, devaluations, wealth decay, inflación tan alto, ya oíste, 70%, como survey when the median salary is less than 15 grand a year, but you can only get paid in pesos. That's a kick in the rear when the government keeps slashing the value of the peso, import costs keep rising, have a jamón y queso while we try to break this down, make some sense of this mess, ese tren va por Argentina, el Investopedia Express. Bienvenidos a todos from the River Plate. I'm down here for a little family time, a little asado, and a deep dive into the peculiar economic dynamics of Argentina. We're going to dig into that in a few minutes, but first let's get caught up and let's get set up. U.S. stocks ended the week with a fizzle, but not before a three-day winning streak breathed some life back into some beaten down sectors. The S&P 500 and the Dow Jones Industrial Average posted their biggest weekly gain in a month, while the Nasdaq notched its largest advance since early July. The yield on the 10-year Treasury ended the week at 2.75%, and the yield on the two-year closed at 2.97%, a little continuation of the yield curve inversion telling us that investors are not too hot on the short-term prospects for the U.S. economy. Fed fund futures swung around all week long as traders are trying to handicap just how much the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates at its two-day meeting this week. As of Friday, Fed fund futures are hinting at an 80% probability that the Federal Open Market Committee will lift the benchmark rate by three-quarters of a percent on Wednesday, just as it did in early June. Inflation is still red hot, but it's been cooling, especially in the commodities aisle of the global marketplace. Gasoline prices have fallen steeply from their mid-June high point of $5.02 a gallon, and the national average is now $4.36 a gallon, according to AAA. Wheat futures prices have fallen by 37% since mid-May, and corn futures are down 27% from mid-June. The cost of shipping goods from East Asia to the U.S. West Coast is around 11.4% lower than a month ago, even though supply chains remain backlogged. That drop in prices may be more of a harbinger of a recession than a natural reversion of prices, but U.S. consumers are paying attention. The latest University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Survey showed that longer-term inflation expectations slipped from 3.1% in early June to 2.8% in early July, matching the average rate during the past 20 years before the pandemic. Consumer confidence in the economy is ticking up slightly to early June levels, with 26% of consumers expecting the economy to get better over the next six months, while 57% of consumers expect the economy to get worse. That's down a couple of percentage points. Fair skies? Hardly, but some stabilization as U.S. households come to terms with the realities of the economic slowdown, a potential recession, and a stock market that's kind of going sideways. According to Morgan Stanley's Consumer Pulse Survey, inflation remains by far the top concern for two-thirds of consumers in line with the past several weeks and significantly higher compared to the beginning of the year. The political environment is the second primary concern for 38% of consumers, followed by the spread of the new COVID variant at 30%. Consumers' household financial outlook is the same as it was last month, with 34% having a negative outlook on household finances and another 29% expecting no change 
over the next six months. The weaker outlook is driven primarily by low and mid-income consumers, while higher-earning consumers are generally more positive. Inflation hits lower-income folks the hardest all over the world. How are companies holding up? Well, we're in the teeth of earnings season, and while most analysts thought the sky would be falling by now, the results belie those fears. According to IBIS and Refinitiv, 75.5% of the companies that have reported so far have beaten consensus analyst projections for earnings per share by an average of about 4.7%. That compares with 66% of companies beating EPS estimates in a typical quarter since 1994 and an average beat margin of 9.5% for the prior four quarters. As for revenue, 68.9% of companies have top forecasts by an average of about 1.3% compared with 62% of companies beating in a typical quarter since 2002 and an average beat rate of 3.4% percent for the prior four quarters. This week, though, is huge for earnings results with some of the largest and most widely held companies reporting results. We'll get to those in a minute. Traders, though, may be anticipating some nasty results given recent activity in the ETF market. This past Wednesday, inflows into the SQQQ ETF, which is short the triple Qs with three times leverage, hit a new all-time high of $460 million. The triple Qs, or the QQQ ETF, holds the top 100 stocks in the NASDAQ, including Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft, and they are all due to report results this week. Maybe they think giant tech stocks will pull a Snapchat. Shares of that social media company plunged 39% on Friday after it reported its weekly quarterly sales growth on record. Shares of Snap have fallen 79% year-to-date and are 88% off their all-time highs reached last September. Let's get set up for the week ahead. And as we said, it's a huge week for corporate earnings with dozens of the most widely held and followed companies reporting results. On Tuesday, the earnings spotlight will be on Microsoft and Alphabet, the parent company of Google, as those two tech giants report their second quarter results. Meta Platforms, the parent company of Facebook, will report on Wednesday, followed by earnings from Apple and Amazon on Thursday. Listen closely to what Apple has to say about demand for its new iPhone 13 coming out later this fall and semiconductor availability, especially its own M-series chips that it has been developing. Microsoft earnings will also be key after the company reported increased first quarter revenue from its business productivity and cloud computing segments. Those are high margin businesses. On Tuesday and Wednesday, the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC, will meet on monetary policy and interest rates. The U.S. Central Bank is widely expected to raise its benchmark federal funds rate by a minimum of 75 basis points as it wrestles with bringing down inflation to its target of about 2.5%. Since March, the Federal Reserve has raised its benchmark rate by a total of 150 basis points, or 1.5%, to a current range of between 1.5% and 1.75%. The Fed has been telegraphing its year-end Fed funds rate to be in a range of between 3.25% and 3.5%. 3.5%. So we're kind of in the halfway mark and inflation is cooling, but it's still pretty hot. So we're going to be listening closely to Fed Chair Jerome Powell's comments at the press conference on Wednesday. On Thursday, the Bureau of Economic Analysis will release the advance estimate for second quarter U.S. gross domestic product growth, indicating whether the U.S. economy expanded or contracted during the second quarter. The U.S. economy contracted 1.6% at a seasonally adjusted rate during the first quarter, so market watchers and economists will be closely monitoring this release as two consecutive quarters of negative GDP growth is often used by the National Bureau of Economic Research as a historical proxy for dating a recession. The latest estimate published by the Atlanta Fed's GDP Now Tracker calls for a 1.6% contraction in real GDP. The U.S. economy and just about every other developed economy on the planet is in low gear. Mi, 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 mi,
The boleros of the Rio de la Plata have this unforgettable way of making you feel tragedy, joy, triumph, heartache, and the helplessness of falling in love all at the same time. They got to me about 25 years ago when I came down here for the first time and I did fall in love with a woman, her family, the campo, the food, and the people. I spent most of my time in Montevideo, the capital city of Uruguay, a country known for its beaches, its beef, its football, its pampas, and its wonderful people. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Buenos Aires. Across the river plate sits Buenos Aires, Argentina, another wonderful city in a country that has a lot of the same attributes, although it's much bigger, much noisier, and far more complicated, especially its politics and its economy. Argentina is a country ravaged by inflation. You might even say that it has a pathological relationship with inflation that goes all the way back to the middle of the 20th century. Inflation sits at 70% today, and it feels like it climbs every week. In fact, it does, rising at a rate of about 1% every week, typically more than deposit interest rates. That means that money sitting in the bank loses its value every day, and the current government, that of Presidente Alberto Fernandez, and several of the administrations that preceded his, are constantly devaluing the peso, the nation's currency, to try to stabilize it, but it never can. For Argentines, that means their money is worth less every day. That's a strong incentive to spend what you've got as soon as you get it, stimulating consumption and demand even when most people can barely afford to feed their families. The poverty rate in Argentina is more than 40%. The irony is that Argentina is a country rich in natural resources. It sits atop a massive shale deposit of natural gas known as the Vaca Muerta. It has a strong mining industry with rich deposits of aluminum, lead, copper, zinc, gold, and lithium. It produces some of the best livestock, particularly beef, of any country in the world. It has a strong tourism economy, bustling ports and rail lines, and a fairly robust and educated workforce. So how could a country with all of these riches have such a complicated and debilitating relationship with inflation? The answers are interwoven with Argentina's pain political history. To try to understand it, I spoke to a few people who know this country well, having grown up here and who are operating their businesses in Argentina. I think Argentina has a very big problem in their fiscal accounts. Argentina spends much more money that they can afford. And depending on what type of government you have, they resort to different tools. Juan Cruz Diaz is the founder and managing director of the Cefiatis Group and the co-director of the Corporate Governance Program at the Universidad de San Andres. He's a lawyer, not an economist, but his company consults with companies and organizations operating or investing in Latin America. Center to left, or I would say more state center, the governments tend to finance the fiscal deficit basically through printing more money and through inflation, and that leads eventually to inflation crises that are recurrent in Argentina. And center-to-right governments tend to finance that deficit problem through external debt. And that leads also to recurrent external debt crisis in, in Argentina. And if you explore our you know, past decades, we've been going through like a pendulum from debt crisis to inflation crisis. What we're having right now, which is particularly worrisome, is like we are having at the same time a debt crisis and an inflation crisis. And we're coming on a a very, very worrisome uh, point in which governments cannot solve the issue because we're not taking the measures to basically solve the deficit and expenditure problem that we have in Argentina. And what is more worrisome at this point right now is like we have extra pressures, which are not basically only based on monetary issues, but we have also inflationary pressures that are coming from different sources. I mean, the war in Ukraine, the post-COVID world, and and many other structural problems are putting also more pressure 
in, in inflationary pressures in the world and in Argentina in particular. To add to all of that, we have a credibility problem right now in the government, which is, 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 is perceived as a weak government in order to address this. Without getting too much into the politics of it all, although it's impossible because Argentina's political history is very complicated, how have past presidents dealt with it? And how is this current administration dealing with it or not dealing with it that's exacerbated the problem? Well, I'm, I'm not going to go too far ago, but I have to in order to put some case in point of what, what I, I just said. One big inflation crisis that we have was in the late 90s, you know, after Argentina recovered the democratic system in, in 1983. President Alfonsín, which is, is a champion of democracy with an important human rights credentials, wasn't able to solve this issue. And in 89, 88 and 89 in particular, Argentina had a hyperinflation crisis that extended through 1990 and in 89, President uh, Alfonsín had to resign. In the 90s, you know, aligned to the, to the cl- political climate of those times, President Menem for, for the Peronist Party acted quite counterintuitive in that sense because at that point, many expected President Menem to follow, you know, expansionary policies or, or more populist policies, if you want. President Menem, aligned to the Washington Consensus or, or, or what it was called by that time, followed a more orthodox path to address the issue and advanced a lot in in, in many reforms that cut expenditures and actually went even more aggressive, which we had a convertibility law that actually pegged the peso to the dollar. And actually, for including a a big privatization reform process and, and, and reform of the state, Argentina was able to contain inflation to zero for a decade. During the 90s, Argentina basically eliminated the inflationary process. However, as I said before, a debt problem, a debt issue, a debt crisis was starting to begin that exploded in the early 2000s. In the the late 2001, president from a different party, Fernando de la Rua, was unable to deal with this debt crisis, which basically created a huge political and economic crisis that made him resign. And after a messy presidential transition, the convertibility law was basically eliminated and the inflation, the corset that was contained in inflation during the 90s uh, was gone. So after the super cycle of commodities that Argentina enjoyed in the early 2000s that helped, went through that crisis and have a speedy recovery on those years, I would say by 2007, 2008, we started to see again that expenditure and fiscal problem of Argentina and governments, specifically the government of Cristina Fernández de Kirchner, the current vice president, started very aggressive expansionary policies that exacerbated the inflationary process in Argentina uh, that President Macri, after Cristina Fernández de Kirchner, wasn't able to contain. And current president Alberto Fernández inherited both a huge external debt crisis and inflationary, a chronic inflationary pro- problem and then you know, the COVID-19 pandemic came. Most sitting presidents are having a lot of trouble in the region and, and elsewhere. And for President Fernandez, it was an impossible problem to solve. And it's, I would say at this point, we're suffering this situation. But the challenge right now that I would say that President Fernandez has is like his electoral base is basically the, the most poor sectors of the society. So if we cut you know, social expenditure and, and, and social plans, 
that affects his voters and, and his base. But at the same time, without doing that, inflation will be impossible to contain. And as we know, especially in Argentina and, and, and elsewhere, inflation affects the, the, the poor sectors the most. Let's talk about day-to-day living in Argentina. I've spent some time there recently, and you have to do this mental calculus whenever you spend money. Should I use a credit card? Should I pay cash? But what you find ordinary citizens doing is spending a lot of money and trying to spend their pesos because they don't know if prices are going to go up tomorrow or how much they're going to go up. They just know they're living in a constant cycle of increasing inflation. So for people on the ground, households, people earning a modest wage, how do they deal on a day-to-day basis with living in Argentina with this uncertainty? It's very challenging. And I will tell you a short story. When I was doing my grad studies here in the United States, all my econ professors asked me when they started to explain inflation and hyperinflation, asked me to tell this story because I was a teenager in 89, 90 when Argentina had huge hyperinflation by the thousands. And, you know, we used to go with my mother to the supermarket. And by then, we didn't have barcodes. We, we had a guy like marking prices with, with a small machine. So we had to have a race and get the, the stuff before the guy was marking the prices. So we get the lower prices. The prices were changing second by second. This is not the case right now. We're not in the thousands. We're getting the 70s, 80% probably inflation uh, this year. But as I said, I mean, people, is, I mean, if you go to Buenos Aires or to main cities in Argentina, you will see restaurants full. You will see people going on vacations because people need to spend or are spending most of the money because, as you might know, the access to savings is very difficult because the only way to sustain savings in Argentina at this point without the sophisticated capital markets and without other tools is buying dollars. And that market is completely controlled. The only way to access dollars in a substantial way is through the black market. And that's what we are seeing right now in Argentina. The dollar at the black market is going up and up and up as, as, as the expectations of the economy are not very good. So if you don't have the ability to buy dollars, you need to spend the money. So as you said, you know, people are is spending the money, is buying TVs. And if you can buy stuff in installments, sometimes you, you, the credit cards or shops gives you the chance to pay like in 6, 12, 24, or even more months or installments. That's another option that people is, is, is taking. But again, that's the people that can afford, that have some money in excess during the month. But I, I, in this situation and in this uh, uh, you know, social and economic crisis, most people, I would say the, 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 the lower classes and, and the mid to lower classes, they probably don't have much excedent every month to do this. So I would say the most worrisome part is that. And the other thing is small businesses. It's very challenging. I think big companies and big multinationals, they have options and they you know, have ways and sophisticated tools to protect themselves from this. But this is hurting really bad you know, small and medium businesses that they have less options. To understand how businesses try to navigate these rolling waves of inflation and devaluation, I spent some time with Robert Matarazzo, a farmer and a friend of mine who manages 11,000 hectares of land in Santa Fe, a province in Argentina's farm belt in the north-central part of the country. We do agriculture, it would be soy, wheat, corn, rice, in Entre Rios, that's uh, sort of a little north, the farm further north, and cattle. We breed Hereford and Bradford breeds. We're living in a time of hyperinflation, although we're seeing a little bit of that turnover 
But when we talk about inflation in the U.S., we're talking about 9% or 6% core inflation. Here in Argentina, you're talking about 70% inflation. Does that translate to what you're doing on the farm, to your day-to-day, to your business? Oh, very much so. Mostly your direct costs are dollar-linked. So you are looking at the exchange rate, which, of course, uh, moves. We have several exchange rates in Argentina, not just one, to add to the complexity. But our business government sets a specific exchange rate by which we can liquidate our grains, by which we get paid eventually in pesos. But then uh, indirect costs like salaries, etc., they're left out to the inflation index. And that is 70 as a, this year, looking ahead, a conservative estimate. It'd probably be higher. So it's costing you 70% more for your labor costs? Yes, And how about your input costs, fertilizer, water, fuel, all of those costs? How are those set and how have those impacted your business this year? Well, those are more uh, directly linked to international prices. As I was saying, the exchange rate by which we change that into pesos is fixed by the government. So they keep that pretty slow. Uh, There's almost a... 90-80% difference between the exchange rate we get paid and the, you would say, commercial exchange rate to general numbers, ballpark numbers. The free exchange rate, if there's such a thing in Argentina, is close to 300 pesos, while the farmers, when we will sell our grain, we are paid at an exchange rate of 128 pesos. So you see that gap there is something that government is pocketing themselves. We've been seeing hyperinflation across commodities, especially wheat, grains, anything that comes out of the Russia-Ukraine area, obviously, energy costs, obviously. But when we see that type of inflation, how does that translate into what you're able to sell your goods for on the open market or not even on the open market to your customers? It's a very particular, in Argentina, there's uh, something called a retention, export retention. Kind of the similar thing they have in Russia for wheat exports. We have it here for soy. It's about 31, 32%. Uh, Wheat is in the 20% uh, retention, and that is gross. So they're not taxing your profits. This is an export tax that then the exporter will trickle down to the producer, what you get paid eventually. So Argentine grain in that respect can be cheaper to the world. Actually, there's been issues in the States with dumping or with Europe uh, with a biofuel when we export. Uh, they consider that Argentina has an unfair advantage, but by hurting its own farmers, which is very ironic. Prices have risen uh, proportionately, but now, of course, we are having a little slowdown given the sort of perspective of a global recession uh, that's slowing down. So I know you do a lot of hedging with your input costs, but when you think about that and you think about the possibility of a global slowdown, of a potential recession, how are you hedging today in anticipation of that? Give us an example or two. I know basically the the area I'm going to seed of a different crop. I know my inputs, how much, what I'm going to need. I'm looking at the market, you know, my, and I have a timeline. Now in September, I have to plant my corn. So I'm going to need, you know, my seed and my, 
and my fertilizer for that time. So I'm running on that sort of deadline. So I try to anticipate. We buy from purveyors. As I said, it's a dollar quote. We can do, basically, we will sell grain in exchange for for that. Or there is financing also, private financing from banks. Government has special lines that they will subsidize uh, the interest rate. So it allows you to play favorably against inflation. So you might be financing uh, some input in pesos at a 40%, 50%, which seems ridiculous. But if you're looking at an inflation of 70 or above, it makes a lot of sense. And usually a lot of uh, those uh, deals are, you know, you have a ne- negative uh, interest rate. You end up, no, one year of financing. What is it that concerns you the most going into the back half of 2022 and into 2023? Is it a recession? Is it climate issues? Is it rising inflation, rampant inflation, or is it the whole thing? What is it that one thing that sort of keeps you up at night as a farmer? Whether it has to be, you know, the classical farmer's answer. Uh, we're in a Nina cycle that is dry for this part of the world. There's nothing you can do against uh, a drought. Secondly would be world recession. Very little we can do about that. And inflation, we know it's really bad, but we know how to deal with that. We're accustomed to that. So that would be the least of my concerns. To Juan's point, big businesses and even medium-sized businesses like the one my friend Robert runs know how to navigate inflation. They've been living with it for decades. Agricultural exports are key to Argentina's economy, accounting for about 17% of its GDP. So as Robert said, there are incentives for farmers and exports are priced in dollars. Still, the mathematical gymnastics that farmers, business operators, and consumers have to deal with in this country on a day-to-day basis are mind-bending. Imagine planning your weekly shopping trip to the grocery store in the United States and not knowing if a gallon of milk will be $5, $8, or even $12. Yet Argentines are used to it. It's part of their everyday life, as frustrating as it is. Here's Juan again. It's a very challenging situation. Having said that, as you said before, this is no new for Argentina. Most citizens, you know, are preparing themselves. We have memories on how to do this. So most people is protecting themselves in any way they can, keeping dollars in, you know, in, not in the bank accounts, but at home or in safes or looking for different ways. I think people, especially the middle classes, are way better prepared right now than other times. But the most worrisome part, I would say, is that it's a, it's a lower class, a lower sector, so the poor sector, so. Uh, on the society. It's obvious when you're walking around Buenos Aires that people are spending money, those that can spend money, but it's also pretty obvious that the lower classes are not doing well at all, and they haven't been doing well for decades, in fact. So let's talk a little bit about how the government deals with rampant inflation. There's a constant devaluing of the peso going on. And then at the same time, workers are demanding higher wages to deal with inflation. How does the government balance these two things out? And then we're going to get to imports and exports, which is a whole nother set of calculus that people need to think about in operating in Argentina. But let's talk about, first of all, the devaluation of the peso. How does that work? And how can that work since they seem to be doing it so often? The most complicated part is like in Argentina, we don't have one exchange rate. We have several exchange rates. So there's one official exchange rate that has, although we have seen some constant devaluation, it has been relatively stable because it's controlled by the government, but it's a fictitious exchange rate because, uh, I mean, it's virtually impossible 
for people or for companies to access dollars at those price. So, and then you have several, several, several types of, of exchange. Some of them are official. Some of them are created basically by the financial sector with some creativity using different tools from the market. And then you have the, the, the different unofficial exchange rates. We, we call the, the, the blue dollar, which is the unofficial exchange rate. There's the Bitcoin dollar. I mean, there's a tourist dollar. There's several exchange rates. So it's very complicated at this point to deal with that. So depending on who is the stakeholder, it, it's depending on who we will talk about the evaluation. But that's, that's the pressure that the market is putting right now to the government. The, the, the market, uh, you know, the, the, the unofficial dollar right now, as, as we speak today, it's reaching three, 340 pesos and the official dollar it's 140 pesos. There are, there's like a 170, 180% in difference between the two exchange rates. So there's a lot of pressure on the government to devaluate, to bring the, those, those values to a more equilibrium. Of course, in, in the middle of, the, of this inflationary process, the government is quite concerned that if, 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 the, if they devaluate, this situation will impact prices as well. And of course, um, you know, uh, workers will earn less money and will become more poor. So, and the other element of your question that is important to understand is like the, we have the formal workers that most of them are unionized and the unions are very strong in Argentina and they have strong links with the government and the unionized workers have been able to negotiate that their salaries are updated at the rate of, at least at the rate of, of inflation. So they are relatively protected in, the, in this context. But the big problem is that almost 50% of the workers in Argentina, and it's the same from in many other countries in the region, are not formal workers and the informal sector. And those workers are not unionized. And those workers are not protected by these negotiations. And they all, they're, of course, they're not only have less worker rights and social security rights, but their salaries are not keeping up with inflation. So as we said before, these informal workers are losing uh, strongly with the inflation. So they, this, uh, you know, um, worsens the social situation that we, we, we were discussing before. Uh, the interesting part right now is like unemployment is not that high right now. You know, we, we, after the pandemic, we've seen a recovery in the economic activity. There are several sectors that, are, that, are, that have been recovered in the services sector, tourism, you know, the Oil and gas sector is, is doing very well. As you know, Argentina has a vaca muerta shale play, and we're, we're seeing records uh, in production on gas and oil. Uh, we, we've seen this year records uh, in, in, in the agricultural exports in Argentina. So there, there, the, 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 there are fundamentals that are working in the country. And I would say the problem right now is mainly political, in which the political elite haven't been able to agree on how to address with this inflation and, and, and created a lot of uncertainty. So let's talk about small businesses. You said they have a lot of trouble, especially those that export. When the inflation rate is constantly rising or constantly on the move, the currency is constantly being devalued, there's multiple exchange rates and a lot of uncertainty. How does an exporter operate and how can those that are importing from that exporter in other countries, call it the US, Europe, China, how can they depend on prices and price stability from small businesses in Argentina? That's very challenging. I would say the external sector in Argentina 
it's one of the most challenging sectors right now. If you are an importer, for example, if you need to import goods, you know, to even to produce, I mean, there's a lot of sectors of the industry in Argentina that are very efficient, but they need to import equipment, parts, some raw materials to be able to export. But the red tape and the restrictions and the regulations are so, so, so hard. Uh, and the bureaucracy is so hard at this point because of this, because every dollar it's controlled in Argentina at this point, every dollar that goes out. So, so it's been a nightmare for many businesses. And I said before, big businesses or big companies or big multinationals, although they have problems, uh, some sectors have, have specific uh, benefits, you know, in the mining sector, in the oil and gas sector, in the auto parts sector, some of them are receiving, or big, big industrial sectors, some of them are receiving some benefits or some flexibilities in order to access to the, to, to the imports. Um, but for smaller companies that have less, I would say, force to negotiate with the government, these type of exceptions, it's been at points virtually impossible you know, to import the materials that they need. And this has been a nightmare in terms of, you know, sometimes the production has been, hasn't been stable. There are some small companies that had to, you know, lay off people or break some commitments that they had, even closing the door. So it's, it's been, it, and it has been a strong problem in terms of the imports. And in terms of the exports, that's a sector that the government is much more interested because that means that, that uh, some of those dollars are, are coming to, to Argentina. But again, it's a headache for many of them because the dollars that they receive are at the official rate. So, when they export, you know, they will receive in Argentina those dollars in pesos at the official rate, discounting sometimes if you have extra taxes, like in case of the uh, agricultural industry, for example, uh, on, the, on the certain cases in the mining sector in particular. So it's quite a headache for many of these companies. How do you see things playing out over the next year or to 15 months in Argentina? Well, it's a very, very challenging uh, situation for the President Fernandez and his chances or his expectations for a potential re-election at this, at this point. It's very hard to think that President Fernandez could win or, and at this point could even be a candidate for the next presidential election in 2023. And even beyond that, if we look at the polls today, it looks extremely challenging, virtually impossible for the Peronist party in, 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 who's actually running the country right now to be uh, you know, winning the presidential elections next year. We see a country with strong economic credentials. You know, the, the Supreme Court in Argentina is, is very independent and actually very opposition to the, to the government. The government does not control fully the, the Congress. We have the media and the press is very independent and mostly very critical with the government. And the actual chances of the opposition to win the elections are very high. So despite this economic uncertainties and an economic and inflationary crisis, you know, we, we still have, you know, solid institutions working so far, which is good news because they will, this will help Argentina go through this crisis uh, in a potentially orderly way. That's the paradox of Argentina. Inflation, political instability, and economic uncertainty are just part of life. And the people I met here and the millions of people you see throughout the bustling streets of Buenos Aires live life to its fullest. Tragedy, joy, triumph, heartache, and the helplessness of falling in love are all part of the tango that is Argentina. 
It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Michael in British Columbia, Canada, lovely up there in the BC. Michael suggests capitulation this week, and we love that term given recent trends in the stock market. We've sold off a lot with the S&P 500 down a little over 17% from its highs of 2021, climbing out of a bear market in the last couple of weeks. According to Investopedia, capitulation describes the dramatic surge of selling pressure in a declining market or security that marks a mass surrender by investors. The resulting drop in market prices can mark the end of a decline since those who didn't sell during a panic are likely to do so soon after. Capitulation typically follows significant downturns in price, which can take place even as investors remain bullish. As the downturn accelerates, it reaches a point where the selling by the investors unwilling to suffer further losses snowballs, leading to a dramatic plunge in price. Despite all the selling this year, it kind of feels like we haven't quite seen capitulation, at least just yet. On the other hand, the research team at JP Morgan just pointed out that a record 12% of U.S. companies were trading beneath their cash and short-term investments. That's the highest level we've seen going all the way back to 1990, which tells us that even a sizable chunk of companies are not even being credited with the assets on their books. That kind of does feel like capitulation. But if you remember what Dan Niles told us last week, he thinks we could see another drop of 20 to 30% in the S&P 500 as companies report results that could underwhelm investors. We'll see this week, but maybe we are standing on the precipice. Capitulation on one side, a return to buying on the other. Or maybe we're just going to kind of hang out here for a while until investors are compelled to keep selling or start buying. Good suggestion, Michael. A pair of Investopedia's sweetest socks are coming your way. Thanks for joining us this week, and muchas gracias to all my people down in Buenos Aires and Montevideo who helped me understand inflation, exchange rates, and the economic way of life in El Rio de la Plata. Gracias a todos. We're going to let Federico Cerda take us out this week. You'll find him at the San Telmo Market in Buenos Aires selling beautiful restored guitars and singing boleros hermosos. No cuelgue la tarde es triste, me siento sentimental. René, ya sé que no existe, charlemos, usted es igual. Charlando soy feliz, la vida es breve, soñemos en la gris tarde que llueve. Hablemos de un amor, seremos ella y él, y con su voz mi angustia cruel será más leve. Charlando soy feliz, soy el cautivo de un sueño tan fugaz que ni lo vi. Charlemos nada más que aquí en mi corazón, oyéndola siento latir otra emoción. ¿Qué dice tratar de vernos? Sigamos con la ilusión, charlemos sin conocernos, corazón a corazón, no puedo, no puedo verla. Es doloroso, lo sé, como quisiera quererla, soy ciego, perdóneme. Charlando soy feliz, la vida es breve, soñemos en la gris, tarde que llueve. Hablemos de un amor, seremos ella y él, y con su voz mi angustia cruel será más leve. Charlando soy feliz, soy el cautivo de un sueño tan fugaz que ni lo vivo. 
charlemos nada más que aquí en mi corazón, oyéndola siento latir otra emoción.